So I think Mike Jaderston is great. Mike, he's one of the funniest guys I know. And when, you, when I read the text today, you're going to say, way to go, Mike. Because the text is a hard one to do kids' sermons, or as Miss Julie Pritchard in the kids' ministry wing of our church says, Ben, what am I supposed to do with your text today? I'm supposed to give kids crayons and pictures to color. When I read the text, you'll understand what they're talking about. I made it a little difficult. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses um, 2 through 12. That's our text today, and that's the text I'll be preaching from. So Galatians chapter five, I'm gonna read starting at verse two. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators... I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you are a God of clarity. You are a God who has given us his word. Nothing can be more clear, Lord. And so now I invite your spirit, Lord, to give us understanding of what you have just declared to us through the apostles' words. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so now you can see why Ms. Julie Pritchard emailed me earlier this week and said, Ben, what am I supposed to do with this text? But she made something up, and it was fine. So we're now in the fourth week of our sermon series here where we're going through Eastminster's values. And if you have your bulletin with you, you're going to see that this week we're on the fourth value, which Mike has already shared with us which Joseph has shared with us, is teaching for transformation. Here at Eastminster, we believe that to live obedient lives for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of his kingdom, that we must preach the gospel, teach the gospel, and obey the gospel in the power of God's Holy Spirit for the transformation of the heart and for the renewal of the mind. I'd like to suggest this morning that some of the telltale signs that a person who claims to follow Jesus is not being transformed in his likeness is evidenced by things such as ingratitude towards God, little to no understanding of the Bible or the great and precious doctrines of our faith, a lack of love for your neighbor, the absence of joy or peace in your life, and little to no hope 
for your future. Now, there's a number of reasons why those of us who bear the name Christ might struggle in this way. But if I'm honest, I think the tragedy for us today as Western Christians, Christians who live in an abundance of wealth and comforts, is that our life with Christ or in Christ is not what it could be because we simply have a lot of excuses that reveal our love for the things of this world. We are unwilling to forgive grievances of those who have sinned against us. Quite honestly, we're just lazy. If I put it simply, the reason many Christians live what looks to the world to be defeated lives is because we love sin. And we resist the change that the Holy Spirit wills to bring in and through us through obedience to the commands of Christ and by participation in the fellowship and the communion of the saints in the church. And while I believe this to be true, I will suggest that there's really only, maybe, perhaps, if I'm going to grant us that, one legitimate reason why Christians might struggle, why Christians might struggle to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. The Christian faith is one that we have received. It was passed down. It was handed to us. And so maybe one of the only reasons, one of the only excuses is because we have not been properly taught the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have not properly understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. And consequently, we fail to grasp the fullness of the truth as revealed to us in all the scripture. That's a big might. And so in this letter, Paul is writing to the Christians in Galatia. And in the first chapter, he gives us the reason why he is writing this letter. Paul says this in verses six and seven of chapter one. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another gospel. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so here, right out of the chute, the apostle Paul is telling us why he is writing this church. This church is abandoning Christ. They're walking away from Jesus because some within the church have distorted a true understanding of the gospel of Christ. And wherever there is a distortion of the gospel, friends, you will find people who have difficulty being transformed into the image of Christ. And so in particular, this church in Galatia had a problem understanding man's relationship to the law. We're going to look at that today. And our relationship to Jesus. The distorters of the gospel in that church were teaching that in order to appease God or in order to merit God's favor, that one needed to be circumcised. And every man in here said amen that that's not true. But this is what was being taught. If you are circumcised, then you are saved. And this is why in verse two of chapter five, Paul says, if you let yourselves be circumcised, then Christ will be of no value 
to you. In the Old Testament, circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, and Abraham was to receive that sign and to apply it to his children. Abraham did that, and this was a sign of Abraham's obedience and evidence of his trust in God's promises. It's apparent from Paul's words here that the distorters of the gospel in the churches at Galatia had a different understanding of circumcision and what what its requirement is now. Paul teaches us as Christians today a very important lesson in this passage. Paul is saying that if you are here today and you claim to follow Christ, but you think that you can merit God's favor by what you do, that you think that in your own power you have the ability to get to the Father apart from the Son, if you think that you're gonna get to heaven because your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then he says Christ will be of no value to you. Hear that again, friends. If you think you can get to God apart from Jesus, then you do not value Jesus. And in verse three, Paul says, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. So how does Paul get from these distorters of the gospel thinking, well, it's required of you that you be circumcised to be saved. Now Paul says... If you require circumcision, you're actually now obligated to follow the whole law. How does Paul get there? In chapter three, Paul actually quotes God as he is interacting with Moses. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 27. And in this chapter, God has, or Moses is explaining to the people the curses that are associated with the covenant that God made with his people at Sinai. And Paul says this, for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. How many of you in here have graduated from something or are going to graduate here in the next few weeks? Good job. This is the season of graduations. You just got to scroll through social media. I've seen all the preschool graduates. I've seen all the middle school graduates. I've seen all the high school graduates, the college grads, and even some who have just finished their graduate degrees. What Paul is telling us here, let's consider for those of you, maybe some of you actually graduated summa cum laude, which is a 4.0 or higher. If God were to accept you, you would have to graduate summa cum laude from the time you were born to the time you graduated. Your cumulative GPA would have to be 4.0, but God requires more, and we're going to see this. Let's just say over your lifespan, from the time you started going to school, because every child who is three years old is the smartest kid in the world, Just ask my children. I always thought they were the smartest. Well, from the time they entered into the school to the time they finished graduate school, let's say the total amount of points that they had to get or that they could get was one million points. How many points would they have to get to graduate summa cum laude, you mathematicians? 
at least 900,000, correct? Well, see, God would not receive that. What God's law requires is that you fulfill all the points that you could ever have achieved or earned. That's how the law of God works. You could not graduate with God without earning one million points out of one million points from the time you were born to the time you graduated with your last college degree, which would be harder for guys like Pastor Stan who has his doctorate. It means you could not make one mistake. This is how the law of God works. And sometimes it has been tempting for some to think that they could fulfill the law of God. There was this young man and he was rich and he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus do? Well, what does the law say? And he rehashes those laws. And the rich young ruler says, well, I have done those. He didn't understand. And so Jesus wants to bring him into an understanding that you don't have what it takes, my friend. Sell all your possessions and follow me. And he couldn't do it. And what Paul says here in verse four is illustrated for us in the rich young ruler. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. What did the rich young man do? He turned and he walked away from the very one who could save him, namely Jesus. The law could not do for him what he wanted it to do. Perhaps some of you have lived in such a way as to try and gain the approval of somebody who would never give it to you. That's hard, that's a hard life to live, right? It's defeating, it's demoralizing. Early in our marriage, one of Ashley and I's favorite movies to watch was called Eight Seconds. It was a movie about a bull rider, professional rodeo guy. Side note, my wife grew up in Arizona from the time she was eight, but her father lived in Florida. Her grandparents were cattle ranchers. And so Ashley would go for the summer to Florida every summer through high school to live with her dad. And in high school, um, she thought she was going to marry a Christian cowboy. She married this little Hispanic breakdancer instead. <laughs> this is how I got, no pun intended, roped into watching Eight Seconds. It was a great movie. I really enjoyed it. The story is, again, of, of a man by the name of Lane Frost, a professional bull riding champion and a Hall of Fame rodeo man. And basically, the movie follows his rise to the top of his game. But there was what I thought to be a major point in the movie, maybe it was minor, but I certainly caught on it early on, is that part of the constant struggle in Lane's life was trying to gain the approval of his father. No matter how well Lane Road, no matter what title he received, his father would say things like, well, you missed that. He could only point out the imperfections. And when he made it to the top, he didn't say, congratulations, way to go. He said, you need to stay on top. Friends, the law of God functions just like Lane's father. It requires 
absolute perfection and obedience. It's rigid, it's unbending, and it does not move. So now let's clarify the relationship between us and the law and the relationship between God and his law. Let's think of the law of God as a mirror. I'm holding up the mirror and I point it towards God. What does it reflect? The mirror reflects God's righteous and holy character, his goodness, his absolute moral perfection. This is what that mirror shows when it's pointed at God. Now, when I point it at you, what do you see? All you can see is every way in which you have transgressed, violated, and rebelled against God's law. If you don't see that, then you can't see Christ. The law reveals God's holiness, and the law reveals our sin. This is why Paul says that if you're trying to get to God through obedience, you alienate yourself from Jesus. Because even though the law is holy, it serves us as a diagnostic for our sin, but it is not the cure for the sin. Jesus Christ is the cure for our sin. His atoning death, but even more so, his active obedience in his righteous life to the Father. He did everything the Father told him to do, and he didn't make one mistake. If you know that, by faith, Paul says this, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. It almost sounds like in this passage that Paul is saying we don't yet possess this righteousness. But we do. How many of you long to be rid of the sin that so easily entangles your life? I hate my sin. I hate the thought of sin. I hate the thought of being alienated from God in my sin. And I hope you do too. If you do, Paul says a day is coming when that which we eagerly await through the Spirit is that one day we will know a righteousness that is fully realized. One day with Christ in heaven, we will no longer struggle in this body of flesh. I long for that day. But until then, until the struggle is no more, we continue in faith to come to Jesus because he is our righteousness. For your sin today, Christ is your righteousness for those who come to him in faith. But it's only through the Spirit that we can attain that sort of faith. Paul says something peculiar in this passage. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Now, if you read in Galatians chapter two, Paul gives this account where he's with his companion by the name of Titus. Titus was not a Jew. Titus was a Greek man. And they went to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there was a church council that they had there. 
because they were wondering, now that Gentiles are coming into this Jewish faith, should we require, what should we require of them? Should they be circumcised? And Paul is reminding the church, we didn't require, I didn't require Titus to be circumcised because that's not what God requires and because he was a Greek. But if you read in Acts chapter 16, another one of Paul's companions, Timothy, they're getting ready to go minister and witness to the Jewish people, their Jewish kinsmen, and Paul says, Timothy, you need to get circumcised. Timothy's mother was a Hebrew. His father was a Greek. So why then, if Paul believes that it's not through obedience or through circumcision that a man is saved, why then does he not require it of Titus, but he tells uh, Timothy to be circumcised? And here's the funnier question. These people are so serious that somebody's checking. (laughs) This is how serious it was. But there's a principle that Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says, I become all things to all men in order that I might save some. And Paul says, Timothy, we are going to these men who have a high view of the law of God, and you are half Jew, so let's get you circumcised so we don't ruin our witness before we get there. He's not saying you should do this so that you can be saved or approved by God. But because we love these Jewish people too much to put any unnecessary offense before them, before we even get there. And this is why Paul can be, to some degree, indifferent about circumcision. He's not mad at Jews who still practice it, but he is mad for anybody who says that you are saved by it and that you can merit God's favor through it. And in this passage, Paul tells us, Mike shared it with the kid's sermon, that the only thing that counts now is faith expressing itself through love. This means for us as believers who have received the righteousness of Christ, our faith is now expressed through love. Brothers and sisters, the transformation we teach here at Eastminster, the transformation we preach here is a transformation of the whole person. We see Paul laboring to teach the true gospel. That is, he is seeking to inform your mind, the intellect, that which is immaterial, But now he says this faith that is living is a manifestation of the material. You now submit your body as living sacrifice to God. And true faith is expressed through sacrifice, serving your neighbor, feeding the hungry, helping your neighbor, going to Puerto Rico. This living faith has historical and doctrinal content And it must be believed in order to grow, but it also comes with commands that we submit our bodies to in obedience so that God can carry out his work in and through us. Paul says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I find it interesting now that Paul says, who cut in on you and kept you from obeying? Because the other side is saying, Paul is teaching you to not obey. And so now we must understand the role of obedience in our salvation. We are to obey the commands of God. Elsewhere, Paul writes, 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There is a sanctifying work going on when you and I obey simply to live a life that is pleasing to God. We do not obey because we are trying to merit God's favor, to garner his attention, to try to move or force his hand to do the things that we want him to do. We obey so that we are sanctified. I don't understand the mystery of that, but I am called to work out. You are called to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is necessary for our transformation. And so as a church, when we gather corporately to sing, to pray, to read and receive God's word, when we practice these things in our private devotions and in our family devotions, when we practice these things in our grow groups, in our kids and student ministries, we give ourselves over to learning, we give ourselves over to good works, to loving and caring for our neighbor. We abstain from evil. We do all these things because this is how God makes us like his son. This is how we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. Paul says, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Would you say Paul's angry? Do you believe his anger is warranted or justified? I think it is. Paul is angry at teachers in the church who cause confusion. And so for those of you who teach in any capacity, children, students, through music, Paul says those who throw people into confusion will pay the penalty. Friends, when our teaching is not founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, two things happen. We diminish the glory and beauty of Jesus, the only one who can change hearts. And secondly, we remove all hope for those who desperately need it to carry on in this life. There was a book published in 1968, written by a man by the name of Julius Lester. And the title of the book was called To Be a Slave. In the introduction of this book, Lester notes that one of the greatest overlooked sources for information regarding slavery in America has been the words of the slaves themselves. He said that during the first half of the 19th century, the American Anti-Slavery Society and other northern abolition groups took down the stories of thousands of blacks who escaped slavery from the South. The narratives of the ex-slaves became a literary genre before the period of the Civil War. And these narratives became a potent weapon for the battle to sway northern public opinion against slavery. And so this book is just a compilation of what the slaves said. 
And so I want to tell you what Beverly Jones saw and what she said. This is recorded for us on page 109 of The Negro in Virginia. And they kept their own language. Here's what he writes. Here's what Beverly, here's what Beverly says. Uncle Silas was near about 100, I reckon, too feeble to do no work, but I always got strength enough to hobble to church when the slave service gonna be. Old preacher was Reverend Johnson, forget the rest of his name. He was a preaching and the slaves was sitting there sleeping and fanning themselves with oak branches. And Uncle Silas got up in the front row of slaves pew and halted Reverend Johnson. Is us slaves gonna be free in heaven? Uncle Silas asked. The preacher stopped and looked at Uncle Silas like he wanted to kill him because no one ain't supposed to say nothing except amen while he was preaching. Waited a minute, he did, looking hard at Uncle Silas standing there, but he didn't give no answer. Is God going to free us slaves when we get to heaven? Uncle Silas yelled. Old white preacher pulled out his handkerchief and wiped sweat from his face. Jesus says, come unto me, ye who are free from sin, and I will give you salvation. Going to give us freedom along with salvation? Asked Uncle Silas. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and he that is without sin is going to have everlasting life. Then he went ahead preaching, fast-like, without paying no attention to Uncle Silas. But Uncle Silas wouldn't sit down, stood there the rest of the service he did, and that was the last time he come to church. Uncle Silas died before another preaching time come around. Guess he found out whether he gonna be free sooner than he calculated. Brothers and sisters, Uncle Silas was lied to. Jesus said, come to me all who are burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Uncle Silas needed rest. He needed the hope of a future that was nothing like his past, or his present. He needed to be told of the wonderful work of Christ on behalf of any person who would come to him. And he was denied this. And that so-called minister of the gospel is gonna have to face Christ one day with his careless words. His only hope is the mercy of God. Friends, the false gospel has no power to change us. It has no power to make us like Jesus. It has no power to transform. May God grant Eastminster Church the true gospel and the transformation that comes from it. And I pray that today you would believe in this gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness towards us in Christ. Lord Jesus, we look to the law and we know that we're condemned. But then we look to you and we know that we have been made righteous by faith. Father, thank you that you did not spare Jesus, but that you gave him over so that he would save his people from their sins. Thank you that you have counted us among those you have chosen for your glory, Lord. Holy Spirit, we thank you for applying the work of redemption for us. And we ask, Lord, that you would be gracious to our church, that through the preaching and the teaching and the singing and all the ministry that is carried forth in this 
church, Lord, the, the mercy ministry. Father, that you would change us into the likeness of Jesus and that we would beckon and call others to come and enter into this life with us. Father, I pray for those today who are overwhelmed with their sin, that they would know that Christ is their righteousness. Father, give us something new to long for. We, we are longing for that day, Lord, when this body of decay will no longer long for sin. And we thank you that you have made it possible for that day to come. Thank you, Lord. And now, Father, we, in light of all that you have given us in the righteousness of Christ, we give back through these tithes and offerings. We can't outgive you, Lord. We give now because we can. We give now because it's pleasing to you. We give now because in so doing, you are pleased to work in and through us your will. So thank you, Lord. Use these gifts for your glory and for the advancement of your cause and your kingdom in all the world, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.